Right, welcome to the Copa Kid Podcast. Uh, we got our friend Eric Gomez here, really talk all things Mexico, MLS, Padres, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. We have time. Eric, how's it going? I'm <laughs> doing good, man. Thanks for the invite. All right. So, what do you think of the game? As a neutral, I know obviously you're a Mexico fan, but like if you were watching this just randomly, you would put out what? What did you think? And what you saw over those? I guess three hours long, depending on how long this game was, if you think about it from beginning to end. Yeah, I would I would just be freaked out by how bad CONCACAF is in terms of the organization, the 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 refereeing, um, the fact that they thought it was a good idea to put a VAR tent between both benches. And um, I think you could start with the refereeing bit, right? Like, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for for CONCACAF to um, exploit both of these teams, Mexico and the United States, they are the the cash cows and have such bad refereeing. It just, it doesn't benefit them at all because I think I tweeted that at some point, you know, it's, it's not funny anymore. And I think at, at a certain point, um, teams Sad. are just going to be very worried. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, and teams are going to be very worried about having their, their best players potentially be injured because of the way that a referee kind of, um, uh, just mishandles a match, right? And we, we've seen a little bit of this already during the CONCACAF Champions League, right? Um, whenever you had Club America uh, face off against, um, I forget the Honduran team that they played against, but, you know, that was terrible. Then it was Club America against the Portland Timbers, and it was the exact same story. Um, I think if you were to watch that game as a neutral, you'd be pretty much, like, appalled by <laughs> what CONCACAF is. Um, because, you know, these two teams may not have a huge amount of respect internationally, like around the world. But I think if you know anything about soccer, you know that these are two really big cash cows, not just for CONCACAF, but for FIFA in general. And, you know, you would want to maybe protect them. You would want to build up these events, not just on the uh, business side, but also just, you know, the sporting side as well. Um, so it was just ridiculous to watch because it was, it was one of those games, like, um, you would have in, in El Llano, right at the public park where everything goes, you know, it's penalties that are not being called penalties. And then you have really questionable calls that are being called penalties, guys that should have been red carded playing on forever. Um, just, you know, it was, it was just so crazy to watch. And I think the game sort of lost its, um, it, it, it lost any semblance of strategy after a while, right? Oh, yeah. Lost any oh, yeah. semblance of, of rhythm because um, all these things were going on and it was, it just kind of turned into a weird slugfest. It just, you know, all strategy went out the window. Yeah. It's like you said, from the champions league on, it's like, it's, it's like an inside joke amongst us who watch it. It's just like, Oh, just, you should, you should have been CONCACAF, but it's just, and it's funny to a certain extent, but it's, you know, it's like, it's a, you want to, we make so much money. Mexico and the United States make so much money. And CONCACAF tilts everything to have these games. I mean, they, they tweak the rules. They see these teams on opposite sides of the bracket. Like, they do everything to make it so we have these games. Let's just be honest. Like, that's just, remember the CONCACAF Cup? I mean, <laughs> this is essentially the CONCACAF Cup. But uh, it's just, yeah, it's embarrassing. Like, and I'm not, 
I know some Mexico fans were like, oh, it's Mexico should have won to the refereeing. The refereeing was terrible on both sides. Like Herrera should have been red carded. Then two minutes later, McKenzie should have been red carded. It's it's just a shit show. I, I agree with you. It's just, it looks bad for the region as a whole. I, I mean, we're hosting the World Cup in five years. So you think they'd want to step it up a little bit, the professionalism. I don't think they really care. You know, it's it's this mentality that goes throughout. And it also trickles down, obviously, to the FMF and, you know, Soccer United Marketing, um, U.S. Soccer. I know that they've stopped being commercial partners, but they were commercial par- partners for over 20 years. Um, you know, all these teams care about is money. And I, you know, I'm not going to stand on my soapbox here and say that that's bad for the game because you you understand, you know why teams, countries, federations do the things that they do. Um, but at the same time, I think at the end, you know, the in the end, the product does suffer, right? The product suffers because you tend to believe that Mexico and the United States are going to face off because they're ostensibly the two best teams in the region. But you've had situations in the past where that's flagrantly hurt other teams, right? That 2015 Gold Cup where Panama was just absolutely robbed um, just because, you know, CONCACAF couldn't fathom to have a Panama versus Jamaica Gold Cup final, right? Because the U.S. was gone. It, it, yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I was like, if Mexico and the United States loses, I bet Univision said, hey, we want the third place game at the end. We don't want the third place game before. <laughs> and, and people were like, oh, that wouldn't happen. I was like, you would think it wouldn't happen, but I would not put it past Univision to be like, hey, we want the Mexico-United States third place game to be on prime time. It would, even if it were like this. I mean, I don't think they would care in the end because they're getting the money from the ticket sales anyway, and they're going to get the ratings from, from TV uh, audiences regardless of when the game is played. But it would have just looked very bad on TV to have a third-place game with a full stadium and then followed by a final with Honduras and Costa Rica with, like, 10,000 people in the stands or less in Denver, right? It just would have been a really, really bad look. So, you know, it, it's just – it's really sad all around to kind of see the way that CONCACAF manip- manipulates uh, both of these teams into kind of bending to their will just because they get a, a good check out of it, right? They get a good, good amount of money. Um, from these games from the CONCACAF Champions League. And I thought, I always thought that was, that was really sort of the most interesting subplot of League's Cup and potentially MLS and League MX merging at some point. It just because it kind of cut CONCACAF out of the equation. And even though fans, I think on both sides, would end up hating that, it was also sort of a, um, Oh, sorry. We just had like a lightning strike about 500 feet from here or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think it like hit in front of, of the hospital or whatever, like right across the street. Cause it's just like this bowl of lightning. That was crazy. <laughs> I think that's the first time that's ever happened while I'm, you know, doing a podcast or whatever. It's crazy. There's, uh, there's a helicopter floating in front of my house yesterday when I was trying to do like work calls. I was like, what? I was like, what is going on? Like, it's like, there's like a pipeline project kind of near my house and it was just hovering above me. And I was like, man, this thing is loud as hell. <laughs> well, in case anybody was listening and, you know, just tried to figure out if there was like a civil war going on down here, it was just, just a bolt of lightning. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially just the point, right? Um, I think, you know, if the United States, regardless of all of this young talent that they've assembled, Mexico being what Mexico is and has been forever, 
um, if they ever want to take the next step and if they ever want to take their program seriously, push it to the next level, they've got to find ways to sort of minimize. I mean, it can't just be Mexico versus the United States ad nauseum for the rest of eternity. They've got to find ways to consistently sort of break out of the CONCACAF mold and start playing teams that are actually going to offer them challenges and offer opportunities to rise up and potentially like, you know, when the World Cup rolls around, you're not completely overmatched or surprised by a Sweden, right? If you're Mexico or, you know, you don't miss out on the World Cup entirely if you're the United States. So it's it's really great for us. It's great for the rivalry. It's great for fans who um, obviously want to attend these matches and kind of shit talk their friends on the opposite side. But I think we, you know, as 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 soccer fans and, and people who love either Mexico or the United States or, or you know, both teams in, in, in some cases, you want them to be able to take the next step. And in order to, to do that, we need to sort of talk less about, oh, you know, we potentially have four U.S. versus Mexico matches in the next nine months. Again, that's great for the rivalry. Both of the or two of those four games are going to come within the context of World Cup qualifying. But, you know, a Nations League final, you know, they just completely made made this entire tournament up around the world. And um, as far as the Gold Cup is concerned, the Gold Cup does nothing because the Confederations Cup is no more. So why are we even still having the Gold Cup? Yeah, and it's that's what I was – it's like, do you remember when Cockney happened to make a big deal or they made like a rule where Me- when Mexico was doing the Copa America, it's like, hey, you have to send your A squad to Gold Cup. And now this summer, we know – each team is not going to send their A squad. Like pretty much every European player is not going to be in this for Mexico and the United States. So it's like, you think Cockney is going to do anything about that or say anything? Or it's going to be quiet and just be like, hey, we got the Nations League. We cashed out. We're good. Yeah. And, and you know, to be fair, it's not something that is um, exclusive to CONCACAF, right? It's going on other places as well. But at the same time, it doesn't really offer fans anything new or exciting. I mean, this is just sort of a more drawn out gold cup to be honest, like to have this sort of final four where you've got Honduras and Costa Rica and Mexico in the U S it's, you know, subbing out potentially Honduras or Costa Rica for say a Jamaica or a Canada. Um, it's just the gold cup all over again. Right. So I, I don't sort of, you know, it was entertaining as hell, obviously, but it, it, um, it doesn't really help. On a Thursday night? Yeah, why not? I love watching Mexico on a Thursday night. On a random Thursday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite in the summer international break window, just like right before. Yeah, it was obviously sort of and, – and, you know, you understand that this is sort of perfect for FIFA and every, um, every single one of the confederations in general right after the pandemic. Like they're going to take advantage of every single opportunity to get as much money as they possibly can from advertisers, from TV companies, and and from, you know, now that we're able to slowly go back into stadiums from ticket sales. But um, I still think that uh, long-term, this is a situation that we sort of need to rethink because regardless of how exciting it might be for U.S. fans right now, and, you know, you're going to get really, really, really pissed off when your international breaks with, you know, your FIFA breaks, um, you're going to be facing like, I don't know, the Dominican Republic or Panama. Like that's not going to help guys like Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna and Tim Weah and all these other fantastic players that are in or prospects that are in the pipeline. 
Um, it's happened to Mexico in the past. This is just going to be a new experience now for U.S. fans. And I wonder how they're going to react to that and how the U.S. media is going to react to that. Yeah, it's almost like Copa America, Centenario, that'd be perfect. You know, if Mexico can substitute that in instead of going to a Gold Cup every two summers or whatever, that'd be perfect. You know, it's just and everyone gets their money. Mexico plays higher competition. Boom. You know? like the best of both worlds because you would be challenging yourself against brazil argentina not curacao or cuba where mexico well you know i've been to cuba mexico games where i know if we don't score at least six goals it's going to be well mexico's underperforming that's how that's how low the standard is in some of these matches yeah and it's it's one of those things right like uh, mexico historically has very little to gain from winning these tournaments and winning these games but they have a lot to lose because pre- you know the pressure just becomes um, really, really, you know, really big, really fast. Um, you know, I think Tata Martino had been undergoing this sort of extended honeymoon period with Mexico, especially with the pandemic. You know, they several months without any any sort of game. They come back late 2020. They're playing all these friendlies in Europe. Everybody's happy because you're playing against European teams on European soil, and then you come back to this. And I don't, you know, Mexico fans care whether you win, lose, or draw any game. But if you win, lose, or draw against the United States, it's going to have a much bigger impact. People were already whining after Thursday's game because it went to PKs, right? It was just a sight to see because you see these emotional swings in the space of like five to ten minutes. Once they were going into penalties, they were like, oh, this is embarrassing. We're going to lose. Like Ochoa can't stop any PKs, blah, blah, blah. 10 minutes later, it's like, you know, San Memo, San Ochoa, you know, it, it's, just, it's crazy to watch. And it, it, it becomes even bigger, even more magnified when you're facing the United States. So, you know, it's just going to be very interesting to see moving forward. But you're right. It's like, even, I feel like Tata even knows some of it because he says it doesn't matter where Mexico is obligated to make the final. Like he says that and it's not just talk. He knows we can play. We can play the Gold Cup with my C team. I am obligated to win this tournament. Like he knows that pressure is there, and um, I mean, it's yeah. Like it's just the more and more you take a step back, look at world soccer. Where else do these uh, nations have nothing to gain from their own confederation? Like I, I can't think. I mean, is there a good Asia? Is there a really good Asian national team that does that? I'm trying to think. Well, we had that happen with Australia, right? And they moved into Asia yeah, because they moved. of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, I don't think there's any sort of outsized team uh, in Africa or in Asia at this point in time that would sort of make that argument. But I think what Australia was 20 years ago before they moved into the AFC, um, you could make that argument now for Mexico or even the United States if you really wanted to, because a lot of these teams, and we saw it again, like the United States played down against Honduras. It was the exact same thing we always um, accuse Mexico of doing. When they play against these smaller teams, they get overconfident, they get overhyped, and then they play down and they struggle. Um, the United States did the exact same thing. Like Albert Ellis was just shredding them apart. Anthony he Lozano. He was destroying them. The wrong Lozano was destroying them. I thought when, I thought when it was our Lozano's turn, but he's going to do it even better against these guys. They looked they looked overmatched at times. Like I, I legitimately thought, like if, if Honduras scores right here, like it's going to be really hard for the U.S. to get back into this game. 
And, you know, fortunately, as, as usually, as it goes usually for teams like Mexico and the United States, CONCACAF teams play them hard, but they're just not, you know, there's the, there's this really small, um, this sort of gap between bad teams that can play up, but uh, versus good teams that can play down that even if the good team is playing down, they still have the advantage. If that makes sense. Right. It's like talent eventually wins out individual talent. Yeah. Individual Individual talent. talent. It's just individual talent. One player can do something. And I mean, Gio Reyna almost scored the goal by himself against, uh, against Honduras. Yeah. Honduras. And he had that moment of brilliance. And that was the only thing the U S did for 89 minutes. Right. Yeah. And, And again, it's, it's, it's something that the U S fans are not yet used to. And I think it's going to be very funny to sort of watch them evolve as Mexico fans, as people, or, or in my case, somebody who's covered the Mexican national team for over a decade, um, you know, they're going to come to find those emotions on their own, but it's going to be kind of funny to, to look at from the outside looking in uh, just because um, it's already happening in some respects. Like they, you know, U S fans and media just completely overreacted and blew that that result out of proportion um, when, you know, I watched it back. We had to write a postmortem for ESPN that came out today um, on, you know, Tuesday. And uh, what happened was I kind of mined tweets and reactions and stuff before watching the game. And it seemed like the U.S. fans were really happy with, with the team's performance. When I watched the game back, I was like, well, how can you be happy with this performance? You got completely outplayed in the first, the first 60 minutes, I would say, completely outplayed. Well, well, you know what they they always say, finals are meant to be won. And like, that's fine. If it's a huge, important tournament, you don't care how you win it. This wasn't that. No. This was a a tournament from 2019. This wasn't like the World Cup where I don't think anyone gives a shit how you win the World Cup as long as you win it. Right. This is a stepping stone to that. And you're right. I, I read your, you got, you and Jeff Carlo had a nice piece about that. And I was just like, the, res- the result does not change how I felt about Mexico before. It does not, for me, it doesn't change. And it doesn't change with the U.S. Whether Mexico beat the U.S. or not, the U.S. is going to be good. Right. But they're going to be good. Yeah. But at the same time, I know Mexico losing. I am not, what hashtag what I thought that like I'm not I, I I see the bigger picture because the United States played like shit. I'm sorry, they played like complete shit for 70 minutes, and you can we can talk all we want about Mexico not punching through and getting that second goal, but in well, the it, 90 seconds in the 90 seconds between Moreno scoring that goal and them calling it off, yeah, I thought the U.S. was done. Like looking at their body language, they looked done. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things again where. I sort of look back at that game and say um, the fact that both teams played poorly was compounded by the fact that the ref was horrible. Right. And it just sort of made things even worse. Um, It, it was not befitting like the the level of play was not befitting of a, of uh, a rivalry match, right. Between two teams that are supposedly on the upswing, um, you know, the intensity was there for sure. The passion was there, you know, but the level of play was, was really poor. And, you know, we had people on the Tudena side, at least in Mexico, because I know that they split up the, um, the announcing teams for the, for the U S and for, for Mexico, but at least on the Mexican side, I mean, 20 minutes had gone by and these guys were like opening, 
wondering openly on the air, like what would this U.S. team be with a different coach? Um, because I do think that Greg Berhalter is Berhalter is going to be the guy that takes them to the next level. I think they're going to have to make a switch um, for that 2026 World Cup cycle, especially since it's so important. Um, I don't think getting them to the World Cup is going to be enough or even getting them through to the round of 16. If they're just kind of underperforming the entire way through, um, that's going to show. And I think Berhalter was just pretty irresponsible. He didn't really scout what Honduras um, was able to do or what their strengths were, how they, they would be able to potentially hurt the U.S. And he didn't scout Mexico, which I thought was insane because you don't start you don't start a high line, a high defensive line against wingers as speedy as Uriel Antuna and, you know, Chuy Corona and even Lozano, who's playing as a false nine. You don't put Tim Ream in to defend Chucky Lozano directly. Like, I don't know what he, he, he got away with murder. Half my tweets were just saying attack wherever Tim Ream is. Yeah. It was like, it was like, the, it was like when you're watching a basketball game and they have like that one guard who's like five, nine, and you're like, just pick and roll and post him up. It was in, like, my nest just destroyed him. And I'm just like thinking like, how do you do that? And a lot of the U S soccer guys I found, I, I follow when the lineup were announced, they're like, I don't know about this back line. And oh, it was yeah. rough. It yeah. Was and, rough. and you know, it, it got to a point where if that Moreno goal was not disallowed, that game would have gotten out of control very quickly. I think, you know, the game was over. I'm sorry. That game was over. Like you could see the players, they, they're slumped. Like I was like, this game is over. I was already thinking like this could be a yeah. three, four nil. Yeah, game. absolutely. That was that bad. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there were a lot of things that went right for the U S for that result to you know come by them eventually there i mean i'm i'm gonna die on the hill that um that was not a foul on pulisic inside the box i have no idea what that ref was doing in the sense that the way that he um just so emphatically called that penalty kick was i mean the guy was from panama and you know you could sort of see what was going through his mind i was like this is for 2015 you you know (laughs) you sons of bitches or whatever like Yeah, it was well, It was funny because, like, obviously you're watching the game, you're hanging on every minute, and he does the whole pointing emphatically running, and then when it was time to call the penalty in favor of Mexico, he just did it low-key, like, all right, yeah, that's a handball. Like, I was like, dude, come on, man. I think when Mexico's PK um, went to went to VAR, like, he must have gotten, like, the old, um, the old Buffalo Wild Wings commercial thing where like somebody pushed the button to, to extend the game or whatever to call just call the pk um because you know obviously the the concacaf overlords were, were loving it right the game was was um insane and kind of dragging on and if it would have gone into pks it would have been even more dramatic regardless of who would have won so it you know it just kind of spoke poorly about the entire uh confederation that they had this guy working the game who was completely unprepared for a game of that magnitude. And the other thing that, you know, I don't want to blame the referee for this because it's not his responsibility, but it's definitely something that comes into play when you're sitting in the stands. Um, You know, you don't want to have angry fans in the stands um, for whatever reason. You don't want to have angry fans in the stands when they have a history of doing the things that, uh, you know, the fans in Denver did, which was throw, you know, beer bottles. And, the U.S. fans, uh, right? 
that's a that's a really you know <laughs> that's a t- that's a tough that's a tough topic to, to to talk about right because um i think both you know there's there's enough blame to go around on both sides to be honest right and i don't want to you know go into a take a take a deep dive into like um integration and assimilation for mexican americans in the united states you know and all that but um there's no reason for fans to do that it's it's just stupid but there's also no reason for concacaf and for soccer united marketing and for authorities in the u.s to not crack down on that you know you expect that behavior in other places outside of the united states you don't expect it in in you know denver um, and I thought it was just laughable that they put out this grandiose statement after the game saying that they arrested the four guys that, that, you know, jumped into onto the field and the one guy who hit Gio Reyna in the face, like you could have arrested honestly, hundreds of people in Denver. And that would have been a bigger impact. Yeah. It's, it's not like, it's, it's not like, um, uh, and maybe we'll get into it too, with like the chant, but like you wait to do something so late into the process it's like these guys, these fans can think, oh, well, nothing's going to happen to me. I've been doing right. it for 90 right. minutes, you know? And it's like, I'm not, I'm not saying it was fine. I was just saying, like, I'm not surprised by it. Like, it's just mismanaged from top to bottom. They do know? need to kick them out, and they do need to sort of um, just make examples of people when that happens uh, and ban them, not just from, you know, whatever the whatever Mile High Stadium is called now in Denver, but um, basically say you can't go to any other Mexican national team game in the United States for the rest of your life. And that is definitely going to curb other people from trying to do the same. So, you know, it's, again, it's part, partly on CONCACAF as well, because if a ref doesn't know how to call a game and he's just, you know, going out there and literally pissing the fans off as well, not just with his decisions, decision-making, but, with the way that he approaches the game and the way that he sort of engages the players, because he was also quite aggressive with with, with Very. players on both sides, you know, you're, yeah. you're it, it's crowd control basically. You know, ref, refs do a bit of that yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not like I like I said, you haven't said it, I said it either. Like I'm not blaming the refing for Mexico losing. It's just it was shitty on both sides, and it was just shitty. It was a shitty ref game. It felt like a fucking game in Guatemala, a CONCACAF game. Like, it just did not feel up to the level of, hey, this is a this is a high-level international game being played here by top-tier refereeing. It's just, like, 15 minutes, not, not even, I take that back, five minutes into the game when John Brooks lays out Lozano, and I'm just like, okay, obviously it might be too early to give him the card there, but next foul, he's got to get carded. And he did it three or four more times, and it's just like, well, if they're not going to crack down on this. If I'm John Brooks or I'm one of the, you know, even a center back from Mexico, I'm going to keep kicking these attackers if they're not going to give me any cards. And that has a trickle down. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that we don't see. Right. Um, Because obviously when you have a game like Mexico against the United States, it really does depend on who you follow and what sort of the narrative that they want to present as far as highlights and, you know, look at how dirty these guys are and Hector Herrera and all that. Um, There was a clip from Diego Linus trying to kind of, get inside of a uh, U.S. wall on a free kick, John Brooks, um, you know, elbows him in the face, right? When it's your guy who's doing that sort of stuff, you're okay with it. Oh, that's just CONCACAF. That's great. When it's the opposite team doing that, those guys are dirty. You know, they always do this. 
and we should basically exit CONCACAF as a result. So again, you know, that plays into the natural passion that fans have when they support their national team, but it doesn't make it right because at the end of the day, CONCACAF should just eat into their profit margin just a little bit and bring somebody in from Europe or from Asia and or South America. What happened to pro? What happened to, I guess pro is just MLS, but like the refereeing, you invest a little bit of money into it. Like you can't, like if you just invest a little bit of money, get these guys some experience. And especially now there's all the second divisions in, uh, in America and Mexico, you know, it's just train these guys. Like, or, you know, like if you, if these guys aren't doing enough for top level and first division, then train them in the second division in Mexico, United States, all these other countries, kind of like how the NBA uses the G right. League to get the young refs, give them some reps, and then move them up. I feel like some of these guys have moved up, and it's like, have they ever refed a first division? It happens the opposite way, right? You see sort of Mexican refs and MLS refs moonlight in Guatemala and Panama and Honduras and all these other countries um, for those, uh, you know, for those particular leagues, um, final matches or whatever, their playoff matches. And it just goes to show that they don't even trust their own guys. So why should CONCACAF trust a guy like John Piatti or whatever his name was uh, to ref any sort of final? It doesn't matter if it's a made-up new tournament like the Nations League. Um, this is this is serious stuff. Like I said earlier in the, uh, in the podcast, and I tweeted it out, like players can get hurt when you have bad refereeing. It's happened in the past. It's happened to Mexico. Like, well, Demo Blanco's career was never the same after that that uh, Trinidad-Tobago game. So, you know, it, it, it's not funny. And I think that um, in the future, um, we as, you know, fans and those of us in the media who cover uh, both Mexico and the United States, we should we should scrutinize that a lot more. And we should be a lot, you know, just very critical of CONCACAF when these referee assignments are announced, um, basically hold their feet to the fire. Otherwise, again, like it, we're going to get to a point where it's all fun and games. Ha ha. CONCACAF, just wait until Gio Reyna goes down with a torn ACL because somebody wasn't doing their job on the refereeing side. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I 100% agree with you because it's just, your uh, Euro start next weekend. Watch a game. Watch any Euro game. First round, doesn't matter. Watch one of those games and then watch a Gold Cup game a couple weeks later and tell me, because technically they're the same, same level of tournament. It's just a confederation tournament. And tell me which game is better rep, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's as simple as that. It's not like, and like I said, we're not preaching, oh, we lost. No, it's just, it's a shitty both ways. And it's just, uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, shout out to whoever decided to put the VAR thing in between both benches. Oh, man. That is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Even MLS has it in the midfield across yeah, from the bench. On the other side. Other side. Yeah. yeah. Where it makes it easier for the ref to go in. I mean, I, I get why Tata was thrown out because he had his hand around. Yeah, and that was just stupid too. Like I, I think Tata was just completely over the game at that point. Just wanted to go home, right? Wanted to hit the locker room a little early because um, the game was just so silly. But you know, again, these are the types of details that really set Concacaf apart in a negative way. And um, you know, I'm not expecting any invites from them anytime soon. To you know. Um, right for them, moonlight for them. I just, I really don't care because I, I think it, it, it eats into the quality of 
of um, games like Mexico against the United States. And, you know, you, you talked to John Arnold uh, recently. You know, John is one of those dudes. Like, he's a CONCACAF junkie. He loves it. But I think anybody, anybody who cares about CONCACAF in general um, will tell you that this is this needs to be priority one as far as uh, what the Confederation can do to make these tournaments and these games better for everybody involved, because it's, it's a trickle down effect. It's, it's not just going to benefit Mexico and the United States. It's going to allow smaller teams a better chance to achieve their goals on the pitch. If you have competent refereeing, because bad refereeing affects everybody. So, you know, Canada is playing, I think Suriname later tonight, right? You know, Obviously, Canada is going to win that game, but if you have a ref that, for whatever reason, just kind of cocks it up and gives Suriname a, a PK or whatever, it takes one away from them if they play the game of their lives, then you know that's something that affects a lot of people and a lot of fans and, and just really leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. So hopefully, hopefully it gets what fixed. If, what, if, what if one of them takes out Alfonso Davies and then he's out? And then what? You think Bayern Munich is going to be so happy when he goes to play for... For Canada? It's happened. It's happened in the past, right? Where where European teams are just like they're not having it, and they tell like we we had it at Porto a long time. Like every single time there was a national team game when there was like four Mexican players at Porto, one of them would be mysteriously injured. They would literally take turns. Yeah, it, no, you're right. Very rarely do we have Layun Herrera and Tecatito uh, all come out for the same thing, and it was usually one of those guys. Oh, he picked up a a knock, you know, he's, we're not going to let him go. And yeah. it's just like, all right, man, like it's become a, it's pretty clear, but I mean, it's, it's, and you got these European teams. It's like, why, I'm sending my player to go play for free 5,000 miles away on a 12 hour flight. Yeah. And he's going to get kicked yeah. for 90 minutes. Like it's not good, man. And I saw some crazy stat. Um, I think it was talking about Marcus Rashford, but I think I saw somewhere where over the last 52 weeks, he's played, 78 games for club and country. Yeah. But these guys have a lot of miles on their body the last 12, 13 months. And it's, it's part of the reason uh, we were talking about earlier, like it's not going to be eight teams at gold cup. No, it's going to be, especially Mexico with, you know, the, the Olympic Olympic games, right. Yeah. C minus C plus guys. Like, and, and we still talk about Tata's going to feel like he has to win because yeah, he is. No one, the, the crowd doesn't want to hear, hey, this is our C-plus team, so if we only if we crash out in the semifinal, that's why, that's okay. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and, and again, like the pressure is going to be on him moving forward because think about it this way. Um, World Cup qualifiers start in September, and you've, got, you've already lost the Nations League final, whatever that means, like whatever that was. You've lost it against your biggest rival. Um, what's going to happen if you go into the Gold Cup and you don't win that? What's going to happen if after the Gold Cup, uh, Mexico doesn't stand at the podium at the Olympic Games, right? Because I think for whatever reason, people are actually expecting that. I would not expect that. I would look at Mexico's 2012 team and say that was an outlier. That was a, a great outlier, but that was an outlier. Don't expect this to be a situation like the under-17s where Mexico is consistently going to contend 2012 was an outlier, and I think Mexico fans should be happy with getting into the quarterfinals for 2020. That's a tough group to get out of. You've got France. You've got Japan. I mean, they should be happy. We should be happy just to get out of the group, 
whatever happens after that is just an added bonus. It's a crapshoot. Yeah, crap but shoot. after that, you only bring you only bring eighteen players. I mean, you don't know what the hell's gonna happen. It's, it's such a compressed schedule. You like I said, you only bring seventeen or eighteen players dress. So it's just it's it's not like a true tournament. It's kind of like. It's almost like when you play like, youth soccer and you have like a tournament over a weekend and you see who the hell's healthy for the championship game. Less That's tired. Is, but... Who's less tired? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's one of those things where um, people in the media or are, are not going to give Tata a free pass, even if, you know, despite the fact that he doesn't coach the U23 team, um, because the argument there is going to be, well, you know, they sucked at the Olympic Games. Why couldn't these guys just be at the Gold Cup? right? Where we could definitely win some, some uh, silverware. So you're going to get to a point in September where if each of these things happen, um, that's going to be under huge pressure to put up really good results, not just win, but put up really good results. Because if he doesn't, you know, Mexico has this sort of recent terrible memory of what happened in 2001, 2009, 2013. Um, it's going to be really tough for Tata Martino moving forward. And you know, he's been making a lot of money and he's basically been the, like, you know, a celebrity in Mexico for the last two years. He won that gold cup that extended his cred. But at the end of the day, people don't care in Mexico about what you did two years ago, a year ago. They care about the most recent result. And if that's a bad one, you're going to be in trouble. It's just, it's, it's funny because I follow a lot because I'm an MLS fan. And I follow a lot of MLS guys, which are basically, you know, U.S. Men's National Team reporting and things like that. And I follow a lot of Mexico guys. And it's funny how almost like the U.S. soccer guys, like I said, mostly MLS guys, they speak very highly of Tata Martino because, you know, he, play, he was there for Atlanta United. And obviously, a lot of U.S. soccer fans wanted him to coach the United States team. And they still have respect for him. Even after this loss, a lot of Mexican journals are like, well, I don't know, maybe we start looking for someone else. And it's just so funny, like literally one game. And that's, that's all it is. That's, it's just one. It's essentially a glorified friendly, but there was a trophy handed out. So, you know, yeah. And, and that, that sort of, again, that, that puts things into the pressure cooker because it, it sort of, even if you've never heard and there were memes about it, right? Like after the game, it's like, that was the best nations league final I've ever watched. Like, you know, we understand the silliness of it because it is essentially a new made-up tournament, but people were very happy, myself included, when Mexico won another made-up tournament in 2015, the CONCACAF Cup, right, to make it into the uh, 2017 uh, Confederations Cup. Yep. So these these things do have a, a sort of a lasting impact on a program, and I would expect Mexico to want to win the Gold Cup regardless of who's suiting up for them. I think it's a really good opportunity for Tata to maybe pry Santiago Ormeño away from Peru, um, give you know Chicharito Hernandez, um, extend the olive branch, bring him back in, um, see you know basically put the gun to Carlos Vela's head and say if you don't want to play for Mexico at the Olympic Games as one of the overage players, which I think he's been receptive uh, to, but if he doesn't, then you know I'm just gonna make it hard, make life hard for you and call you up for the gold cup. And if you don't want to come, you're going to be answering questions about that for like at least a month. Yeah. It's so just, it's going to be interesting. It's, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I know in your piece with uh, Jeff, you said a couple of things that Tata Mexico needs to focus on here. You had a, uh, you need to focus on set pieces and you need to 
look at his selection. I mean, what what do you, what do you think of the of the roster for the Nations League? The call-ups. I mean, and real quick, let's, let's start off with uh, Chicharito. What do you think about Chicharito? Is he done? The national team? I don't think he, I don't think he's done. I think they're sort of waiting for. I mean, I think he was just sort of on. It was a shadow ban, right? He was unofficially suspended, um, and I think that uh, the situation with Mexico and their number nines is going to force an end to that pretty quickly, especially if he keeps doing well. There's going to be no reason for him to not be at least at the Gold Cup this summer, or again maybe at the Olympic Games as an overage uh, player. That would actually be really fun to see, in my opinion. Yeah, so, I mean, we know that, you know, probably Ochoa is going to be one of those three guys, um, and we know that none of the uh, players in Europe are, are going to be able to be selected probably. So, I mean, I saw I saw Real Venice in April said that, oh, yeah, Linus can go, but that was in April. I mean, who right. knows now? Maybe they're like, hey, we're, we got Europa League now, so, yeah. you know. And again, like, he's not he, – he wasn't a sort of a um, – he was kind of a borderline starter for them last season. And I think, you know, what everybody saw in the Nation's League. Uh, can we just talk impressive. about how this happened in the last Gold Cup, too? Where yeah. He, he didn't want to bring Antuna. And then Antuna came in because someone got hurt. Antuna started every game and was like our leading goal scorer. Yeah. He, he didn't want to bring Lines, But I, I will kind of give him a pass. if I'm assuming Lines was going to go with the U23 squad. Yeah, he was. Maybe. Yeah, so, he was. okay, I can see that. But then Lines, Lines was the – Top two best player over the over the minutes. He well, played. yeah, he didn't. You know, he he played less minutes than 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 Corona, and obviously Corona was not going to be available for the entire. You know, even if it went ninety minutes because he was coming off an injury. But um, you know, Linez is one of those players who is absolutely explosive, and if you give him space, if you give him the ball, and you can see what he does, right? He he would take on. I mean, after he scored the goal, Berhalter just essentially double teamed them the rest oh, yeah. of the game. They said, "Hey, Reem." Give it away. Just stay in the box, and then let everyone else help you out. Because yeah, he just like we talked about earlier. He was destroying Reem, and he he knew it too. You can tell he got the ball, and he didn't look to pass. He's like, I'm going to attack until someone can make can stop me. And it was right. it was nice. It was nice to watch. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So no, but you know, I I I think Mexico chose the best players available from their player pool for those two games. I think. What I have most the most amount of issue with is how he crafted that starting eleven, right? And and you know just being Martino's shown in the past that he gets obsessed with certain players and he plays them despite them not being in form. It's happened with Rodolfo Pizarro in the past. It's happened with Alan Pulido. Has that to a certain extent. They but he, but he guys, has, you know? yeah, right. They have one or two guys. Um, Martino is guilty of having three or four guys who don't, who are not just sort of not making the cut. Um, Chaka Rodriguez is one of those guys. It's happened with, I mean, I was surprised not to see Salcedo starting those last two games because Salcedo was his boy, right? Uh, Chaka Rodriguez, um, Charlie Rodriguez, the uh, Monterey midfielder, um, he's out of form. Like he needs more minutes. He needs to get, get his groove back at Monterrey. He's not playing well. Uriel Antuna is another one of those guys. Like, he's just not playing well. I know that, you know, he did well at, the, you know, or rather I'm thinking of Alexis Vega, who did really well at the U23s despite not playing well at Chivas. It can happen. But if you look at a guy over, you know, you look at him train and you give him 90 minutes or you give him a start, 
in a, in a meaningful game against Costa Rica. He just didn't have it. And against the United States, it got to the point where um, his teammates were avoiding him. You know, your, your biggest strength on offense during those first 60 to 70 minutes was jumping the U.S.'s high defensive line and using your wingers to just kind of drive down the field. And it got to the point where, you know, I saw at least two or three times, whether it was Hector Herrera or Chucky Lozano, Antuno was just like calling for the ball on the wing. They wouldn't give it to him anymore because he was making all of these errant passes and coughing up possession. And Martino was just fine with that. And, you know, that's the type of thing that drives me nuts. You understand as a Mexico fan, you understand as Mexico's coach, nobody's going to do what Raul Jimenez does. You don't have any other player in your player pool who can resemble what Raul Jimenez does as your number nine. Instead of trying to replace him, you sort of maybe think of different ways to replace the production. And I liked having Chucky Lozano as a false nine, despite the fact that he didn't have a good night against the United States as a false nine. But that's a better thing to do, in my opinion, than to force Henry Martin in there, who was not good, or to force Alan Pulido in there, who was not good. So I think that kind of compounds the fact that you, at some point, need to call Chicharito back into the fold. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, I did not want Lozano to be a number nine because, it, like we talked about earlier, I knew who's going to get the shit kicked out of him, and he did. Brooks laid him out several times, but for the first 20, 30 minutes, he was dragging Brooks so far away from his center back partner that Brooks would literally get taken out, turn around, and just point and ask for help. So like this game could have been seen from a totally different lens if the first 20 minutes Mexico scored two goals because they were destroying right. them out there. But you're right, as the second half wore on, all of Mexico's attack was either started from the middle to Lozano or to, or to Gatito. And then you could tell that the first 60 minutes, that was all they were doing. The last 60 minutes, it was the complete opposite. They were going to line S the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, again, individual performances really saved Mexico for long stretches during that game. I would argue for both games, right? Um, so there was no cohesion there, and that's going to be something that Martino needs to look at, not just for the Gold Cup, but obviously for the World Cup qualifiers. He needs to have two or three different types of formations that can produce offense but also hold, hold their own on defense. Um, it seemed like he was kind of sacrificing one or the other. I think he was sacrificing offense against Costa Rica by putting three in the back, dropping Edson Alvarez back there, but that just took the, the teeth away from the midfield. Um, and then the second game against the United States, he, he went balls to the wall on offense, and it worked for a while, but he needed to adjust. So that that is, is something that I would sort of worry about if I was Tata Martino moving forward. But, you know, the biggest thing for me is teams are just going to exploit the dead ball if he doesn't do anything to fix that. Um, it's unforgivable to not prepare for corner kicks and free kicks defensively speaking against the United States, because you know that most of their players, their central defenders and their strikers, heck, even their midfielders are taller than your players. Um, so you need to have a plan to curb that. I was just baffled by the fact that Martino worked on that offensively. Like he knew that that was an issue. So when Moreno scored that second goal that was disallowed, that was one of those prepared plays, right? We're not going to kick it into the box. We're just going to move the defenders out, sweeten it, and leave a guy alone in the back post. It worked perfectly. Why wouldn't you 
prepare your team defensively if you know that the opposition has a size advantage over you? Ochoa saved them like three or four times. Even the, the second goal, he almost, he got to it. He was just a hair late where he couldn't deflect it out. He deflected into the goal. But like you said, individual performances, he bailed them out three or four. And it wasn't like it was like, oh, the guy was it was a messed up header. No, it was a clean header. Like these guys, if the U.S. was any better at heading the ball, they could have had three goals, three or four goals on set pieces uh, Sunday night. It was just it was wild. And I felt no confidence. Every time there was a foul near the box, I was like, shit. Yeah, I understand that. And and I was, I was sort of, um, again, like I was just sort of distressed with the fact that you have these veterans on the team, like Hector Moreno, and that the last coach that they worked with, Juan Carlos Osorio, was just so adamant about not letting teams beat you with their size. So I don't know. I mean, obviously it's on the coach, but I think the players should also, especially the leaders, should speak up and say, hey, man, we worked on this for years. It worked. You know, why don't we implement some of the same strategies that we did with the last guy just to kind of help us out in this regard? Because, again, like the United States scored three times, all three on dead balls. You know, they did they didn't beat you on the pitch. Right. They didn't beat beat you with talent, agility, um, strategy, tactics like they beat yeah, you. No live ball. It was no, no live balls. It was just dead balls. And. You said World Cup qualifying starts in September. If I'm Jamaica, Costa Rica. All those guys have taller players in Mexico, yeah. And I'm going to be like, hey, bunker down. Let's get the ball near the goal, set pieces. I mean, it's that's kind of been the blueprint for to beat Mexico from these smaller countries, but it's even more glaring now. It's like, hey, just knock it in there. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I you know, it, he has time to figure that out, obviously, but he doesn't have a lot of time. So we'll see what happens by the time the Gold Cup rolls around and World Cup qualifying. But, you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm kind of coming down pretty hard on, on Tata here. I, I don't think Mexico should push any sort of panic button at this point because, um, like I said, you know, people were sort of looking at the age gap between the U.S. and Mexico's starting lineup yesterday. That was a graphic that we posted on ESPN I, I, you know, mentioned that it was skewed, obviously, because Ochoa is 35. Zach Steffen, I think, is 24. So, you know, just with your goalkeepers, there's an 11-year gap. Uh, One year right there. So it goes from 28 to 27, essentially, right there. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in my mind, I think that Mexico is going to have a problem, and I've been saying this for, for a while now, after the 2022 World Cup, because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Raul Jimenez, but if he makes it, you know, he's still 31. Um, he's still in his, in his extended prime. Tecatito is going to be 29. Um, you're going to have players who are obviously going to be playing their last World Cup, like you know maybe Hector Herrera, definitely Andres Guardado, probably Memo Ochoa in goal, guys like that. Moreno, if he's still considered by that point, um, I think he did a smart thing by you know coming back to Liga MX because he's going to be. Uh, you know, an obvious starter there, and um, Martino's going to be able to keep a close eye on him. But he wasn't playing, and uh, he wasn't playing. Yeah, weird contract. That was, I mean, what is it with Mexico and these terrible agents? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, you know, they're they're in it for the money sometimes. Um, Either way, like you know, even Nestor Araujo, Nestor Araujo was a late bloomer, and I think he'll be thirty by the time the uh, the twenty twenty two World Cup comes around. So you're looking at this sort of generational switch which is normal 
happens every eight years, I would say. Um, and if you look at the guys that are coming, you know, I'm not, I'm still not sold on JJ Macias, but I can recognize that he's very talented, right? Same with Alexis Vega, uh, Diego Linus, obviously. Arteaga has been just a fantastic surprise. I haven't cashed in my Omar Govea stock yet either. Um, I like Carlos Acevedo. I, I, I was surprised he didn't get called up to the last two camps. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big Omar Govea fan, but uh, he likes Jonah. Tata likes Jonah. And I feel like they're similar players, similar profiles. It's like, I guess you don't really want both, but I, I, I'm still holding that Omar Govea stock. Yeah, even even Jonah is going to be 32, I think, um, for that World Cup. So, you know, a lot of these players, they've always talked about having Martino for the next um, five years now, but it was it was going to be an eight-year thing where they would sort of look at what happened in 2022, but it would only really be a checkpoint because the real goal, is, as it is for the United States and as it is for Canada, is 2026. So... Again, there's no need to push that panic button because there's plenty of talent coming through the pipeline. I think Mexico sort of needs to figure out where its biggest holes are in its lineup. And for me, at least right now, it's very simple. Um, you need a number nine and you need central defenders. Uh, Funes Mori. Yeah, I mean... I, I, heard, I heard he's a citizen as of this week or the next 10 days. I, I, would, I would bring him in. Why not? I don't care. I don't care about... I'm not one of those guys who's like, well, you need to be born in Mexico. Like I wasn't born in Mexico. So, you know, why was, why would I be denied a, a spot in the, uh, in the national team if I were a player? Um, I think that, you know, Funes Mori is a guy that can definitely um, make a difference. And it's going to be interesting to see because it does give Mexico another excuse uh, to not call Chicharito Hernandez up if Funes Mori is available for the Gold Cup um, and they want to give him, give him a run. But, you know, I'm looking at the next generation, right? You know, Macias is one of those guys. Santiago Munoz is, is obviously very young, but he can develop into something. And they just need more players like that in the 18 to 21 year range to sort of polish these next couple of years. Same with defenders. I don't know what the hell happened to Cesar Montes. Like, where is Cesar Montes? I, I don't know, man. Every six months I see a rumor Valencia likes him and then Monterrey, no, 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 we're going to keep him. We're gonna... It's like, let him go. Just let him go. But I, do you think, we talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. Tata has pressure. Every Mexican coach has pressure to win everything. I feel like that pressure has always been detrimental to, the, to Mexico incorporating youngsters. Because if I have a young striker, at, do I play him? Or do I play Pulido or somebody, you know, like someone that I know maybe can handle the pressure because he's 25, 26, 27. And these guys never get incorporated. And then they, be, they then they start making these guys become regular national team regulars when they're 25, 26, 27, when they're older in their careers, as opposed to the United States, which, I mean, when they fucked up in 2017, they went all in and like, hey, if you can't represent us in 2022, we don't want to call you in. We're right. going all the way young in. And I feel like Mexico, just with the short leash these coaches have, they don't want to take that risk of, you know what, I'll get lit up more for playing a 19-year-old and I play this 28 year old guy. Yeah. And I think there's that's, truth to that. Well, that happened, you know, for this tournament. Because again, like, I don't see what the harm would be in playing Arteaga in that final. Right? Me neither. I mean, I'm huge on Arteaga. I'm huge on him. And, um, you know, again, like, you essentially, I, I was pleasantly surprised that Araujo started because I do think that he's 
obviously the best guy that they have available for for center back. But um, playing I feel like he needs a he needs a fast center back partner though. And that didn't happen in the slow. final. Yeah, no, and that didn't happen. No. Like it was yeah. it was really irresponsible for him to pair him with Hector Moreno because Hector Moreno's thirty three and he has no business chasing down Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna and Weston McKenney and Josh Sargent. Like all of those guys are faster than him. And if Berhalter would have come out with a different game plan, that would have been a really, really good thing for him to exploit. He didn't do that. That's fine for Mexico. But, you know, Mexico cannot depend on Hector Moreno to be a starter beyond this year. Like I would, I would actually say that obviously for World Cup qualifying, he's one of those guys that needs to be there because of the experience that he poses and uh, just uh, the way that he can organize the back line and keep guys centered when they're in like San Pedro Sula or San Jose Costa Rica and all those other places. But you're going to need a replacement fast and you don't have them. Yeah, you got to start grooming the replacement. Just call him up, keep him in the camp, you know, things like that. I mean, goalkeepers are a little different too, but like who the hell does Mexico have in the pipeline? Acevedo. Carlos Acevedo is going to be their number one moving forward tonight. You think? Yeah, absolutely. They, they love him. Um, you know, they're already thinking of calling him up either for the gold cup or, um, you know, if Ochoa would have, he's not going to, but if he would have said no, um, to going to the Olympic games, that was another option that they were going to consider because Sebastian Jurado is not going to start for Mexico at the, at the uh, Olympic games. Um, even then, even then there are several places in that lineup, in that player pool that sort of need re- replenishing. And you don't see it now. Mexico's always been very lucky in that regard. You get players that seemingly prop up out of nowhere in a World Cup year, but you can't depend on that happening every single time. Um, so, you know, after 2022, we're going to need to have some very frank discussions about the state of the program and what, what guys are being developed to take over for the Morenos, for the Hector Herrera's, for Andres Guardado, Ochoa, all these guys. Um, but, you know, I think for the next few months, even if Mexico doesn't win the gold cup and they don't win the gold at the Olympic games, um, even if people are piling on Martino, this, the, he's not going anywhere. It's fine. No, and I just hope the FMF just straight up tells him that and then says, Hey, you're the guy please build for the future because this gold cup, since we said it doesn't mean anything, maybe, you know, get, you know, try to find some guys that can be off the bench guys for the world cup cycle in 2022, just build some of that depth, you know, some of that, some of those, I guess what they call it in soccer, what spots 18 through or 12 through 18 or 12 through whatever they allow on the bench now. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, when you do compare what's going on with the U.S., you know, and you look at what Mexico is doing, where Mexican players develop as opposed to where American players are developing right now, it's definitely troubling for the future. Um, but, you know, maybe this is the, uh, you know, the kick in the backside that Mexico needs to uh, put their pride aside and start sending these players out. I think America was probably the last team you would expect to sell their stars at such a young age, they've been doing that. It's been working out really well for them. Edson Alvarez and, and Diego Lainez and, um, you know, maybe Cordova this year or next. Um, I, Jimenez, they sold Jimenez pretty young. They sold Jimenez as well. I think he was 23. 
um, it's working out. And, you know, ironically, teams like Chivas and Pumas and Cruz Azul and both Monterrey teams, even though they don't develop anybody, um, should sort of look at what they're doing. Santos is another example of, of a team that is not uh, afraid of selling their talent, talent young. But, Does it count selling if they sell it amongst themselves? I mean. Right. Like, I, yeah, and that's going to be an issue for Mexico as well because it's it's definitely stymieing player development to have Grupo Orlegi in charge charge of Atlas, with historically a team that just depends on uh, young talent to see them through. Now that they've got Orlegi's money and they're they're we talked about analytics before we started recording, but they've got like this very strict system of buying players in that money ball fashion and we're going to buy this guy really cheap and then sell him really expensive to a different team um it's going to kind of be hard for atlas to continue that that um that tradition of de developing young players and if you're not getting them from the traditional sources uh then that's going to be a problem for mexico question for you do you think the uh factor the caballeros kind of ending has tweaked anything because I, I i think from what i've seen i think i see more players run down their contract than i ever had before like pineda we haven't talked about him but his contract is supposed to be up in uh, december so at least before they, they won i saw rumors that they were trying to find a buyer for him in spain because he can leave for free in six months yeah and you know i think it it depends on who you ask whether the Pacto de Caballeros actually did end or not. I think it's still, it's like a soft, it's like a soft, it's still, there. You know, it's still yeah. there, but not as bad as it was before. Yeah. Like Monterrey will let Miguel Layun walk, but if any other Liga MX team signs Orbelín Pineda, there, there's going to be an issue, right? That's just not going to happen. He's either going to re up with Cruz Azul or they're going to have to sell him. Um, to a European team, he's not going to sign for any other league MX team, right? Um, but I, I don't really see the effects of that yet because it's never been a free market in Mexico, and I don't think it'll ever be a free market. And um, it definitely benefits players if you look at it that way, right? If they're going to run down their contracts to go to Europe, that definitely helps. But I still look at the Pacto de Caballeros existing in that way, right? Where they find a way to hold players and make it so that they go off to Europe or any other team for that matter by being sold and not, you know, just kind of walking away. Yeah, but at least you have the pressure of, hey, my contract is up in 12 months, six months. What's going on, right. you guys? Am I, you guys going to re-up me? Am I going to leave? I mean, if I was an agent, I would definitely play that up because, I mean, if you're Cruz Azul, wouldn't you rather get 3 or $4 million for Pineda than nothing and in theory nothing if he leaves on a free you know yeah i mean if if a guy like pineda and he's a welcome surprise i you know when he was at chivas and left for cruz azul i figured he would just kind of bounce around the league um it didn't really look he was kind of awol for like 18 yeah. months like you didn't hear about him that much and then, then last this past season he, he exploded was... yeah so you know yeah. again seemingly out of nowhere like sometimes mexico gets lucky with these guys and they're able to go off to europe or able to go off to bigger teams and play well like luis romo obviously is another one of those guys um so you know i i don't expect to see 10 12 mexican players go off to europe in the next 12 months but if they play their cards right and the right players are able to do that, guys like Romo and Pineda 
And, you know, Macias, if they please stop asking for 20 million euros to sell him, like that can happen. Alexis Vega, um, Naveda from America, Cordoba from America, um, a couple of the guys from Atlas, like Osiel Herrera, I thought was just really, really good for Atlas this season. And um, Jeremy Marquez. Um, those guys can definitely continue their their development at a lower level European league like Belgium or the Netherlands or even France. Um, I'm still waiting to see what Bizuto does for for Lille, um, even if he's loaned out somewhere else. Like that'll be great just to see him develop and, and get some minutes in Europe would be fantastic. Um, but it's just it's just a crapshoot at this point. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with a lot of these Mexican players, and uh, hopefully it all works out for the best. Yeah, and I'm the I'm one of those guys who always wants everyone to go to Europe, but just because you go to Europe doesn't mean you're gonna do anything. I mean, I think the advantage Mexico has, at least until the Super League, is that Liga MX is just better than MLS, so they don't have to sell their kids when they're or not or you know, 17, 18. These kids don't leave, leave because they have dual passports or whatever. But like, I'm sorry, it's a lot better to develop at Club America than Columbus Crew. You know, it's just, it is what it is. And I think that's always going to be the equalizer as evident by the whole Olympic qualifying, which is essentially a Liga MX U23 versus uh, versus uh, MLS U23. Yeah, youth has always been like a, a really important focus for certain MLS teams. And you see that sort of be the defining factor that has allowed MLS to be more of a selling league now instead of a... Um, importing guys in the final phase of their career league. I think it's been really weird now that the roles have reversed. And, you know, in the past we've seen, you know, you have seen a guy like uh, Antonio Valencia go to MLS instead of going to Querétaro. Right. Um, and I think what FC Dallas is doing and, you know, what other clubs like the Philadelphia union and the Red Bulls, obviously with their association with uh, Red Bull football group, um, what they're doing to advance the cause of American soccer is something that should definitely be replicated on a league wide level in other places like Mexico, but it's just never going to happen. Right. So I think you have to make do the same way MLS is making do with Philadelphia, Dallas, and New York. Um, League MX is likely going to have to keep going down that road with America, you know, maybe Santos, um, uh, you know, it used to be Atlas, but who knows now, um, uh, assorted teams that might be able to push their, their pro their, well, Chivas obviously, but it's, it's really hard to tell the Chivas and, and the amount of money that they ask for players. Yeah. Uh, last question here. You kind of touched on that a little bit before, but what are your thoughts on a foreign investment in Liga MX? Do you think it's obviously off the terrible start with it? with the NFT 1% that how do you not get that cleared by the league before you announce it? But I think before I let you answer, but let me, let me go first. I think these owners are in for a rude awakening when they, they, they come and, you know, with the FMF, it's not like buddy, buddy with MLS and other leagues in America. It's very different. Yeah. They have very, they have, I think very different expectations. I think it's an investment for them um, in the midterm. I think they're not sold on the fact that this, uh, League MX MLS merger is not happening. I don't think it's going to happen in the way that 
most people would envision it happening with just this super 50 team league. I think they're the um, just kind of what we're going to have happen is sort of a leagues cup with 24 teams, right? Uh, maybe 16 from MLS, eight from Mexico, and just kind of rotate those teams out year year in, year out. Always in America, uh, right? Always. Yeah. yeah, every single year, just so you make the most amount of money uh, you possibly can from that tournament. I understand that. I understand why teams or individuals in the United States and in Europe would want to invest in Mexico knowing full well that an MLS team is going to cost you upwards of what 200 million dollars at this point 300 million dollars at this point just for the ex- just for the expansion fee um and if you go down to mexico you can plug in for a historic team like necaxa with a nice new stadium and a valued brand across mexico and pay i think they paid 35 million dollars for for 49 percent of the team you know they essentially own half the team and they, they, you know, they paid 10% of what they would for a team in MLS. How is that not a good investment? I think it's a good investment in the sense that. But no pro, but when, no relegation for the next couple of years either. Exactly. No, no relegation either. So you, you, you sort of, um, you don't worry about that. Um, I think that they can create excitement and they don't even need to win titles, right? It's not expected of them. If Nikaksa, for instance, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think you know. I don't think Mesut Ozil is going to be playing for them anytime soon. But you know, we might have a situation similar to what's going on at, at America with Solari, right? Solari has connections with with uh, Real Madrid's uh, youth system, and he's bringing in players like Fidalgo uh, into the fold. You know, Mesut Ozil can definitely Ozil can can sort of call on his old friends from the German national team and, and teams that he's played for in the past and bring them into Nick Or his Adidas sponsorship. Something as simple right. as that. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, now that San Luis, uh, you know, San Luis has foreign owners and who knows what's going to happen there because we've had very different versions of what could happen to Atletico San Luis in the last 48 hours or so. But even if the you know, old owners at Atletico Madrid remain, or if new guys come in, including, you know, former Houston Astros GM, Jeff Luno, and, and um, a couple of other guys who, uh, who work in U.S. sports, then I think that trend is going to continue, right? Where um, a lot of people in the U.S. who previously looked at England as the only way that you were going to invest in soccer, maybe Italy, there's a couple of guys in France who've done the same thing, you're going to look away from Europe and you're going to start to look at Mexico and say, there's a huge fan base. There's two countries. A, right. in two, in two countries, a, a small entry fee, as far as what I need to pay opposed to say buying Arsenal uh, or Newcastle United or whatever. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's a topsy turvy league where you don't need to invest that much money to build a contender. Like we've seen this time and again. Hot three months yeah. later, you're champion. I mean, yeah. The benefits of the short so, season. I hate the short season, but you get two you get two cracks at the title every year. And and you get money from playing in the leagues cup and having all these club fr- friendlies in the United States. Like, I definitely see a situation in which Necaxa just kind of has their own tour of the Southwest every summer, and you know, guys like Justin Verlander and. You know, Eva Longoria and all these people who bought the team who have connections with um, 
people who own MLS teams can kind of pit them together year in, year out. Uh, so rude awakening for sure on a few things like, you know, the NFTs, um, they're going to have trouble maybe signing the players that they want to sign, or they're going to have tr trouble navigating the rules. Um, they're going to have trouble with revenue share because there is revenue share in league MX, just not the way that you would expect it to be. But at the same time, I think, you know, whenever you grab a mid market team, like Nekaxa, there's a huge amount of upside. I'm still waiting for like a hotshot billionaire to come in and want to buy Chivas or Cruz Azul, right? Like that would be something that would really rock the boat and would add a lot of intrigue, a lot of storylines and potentially make that person a lot of money in the long term. It's kind of like a, a mid-market MLS team, let's just say Houston, that's going to cost you, a, I think they got sold for what, $300, $400 million valuation? Right. And that's, you can, I can argue it's not any bigger than the Coxa, really, you know, where you're no. paying a fraction of that. So it's, it's just, I'm excited, but I also think like, it's like, these guys are going to run into something. And I, I thought that day one and not even day one, they ran into something where the FMF had to send out a press release saying, ah, 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 slow down here with this uh, NFT 1% I know <laughs> that was really funny. That was really funny. I didn't expect it at all that, you know, that league MX is so open on, you know, for certain things that they're so restrictive on, on other things. I just didn't think that uh, they would freak out about these NFTs. It's, it's almost like they didn't know what they were. We're going to do a tweet, a press release. It's like, come on, man. Yeah, it was it was it was really strange to see, but you know, again, um, League MX is crazy, but I I really expect that to to actually become the norm in 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 the next few years. Um, you know, Orlegi has two teams, Santos and Atlas, Grupo Pachuca, obviously Pachuca and León. You know, there needs to be another a different way for teams to move forward without having uh, multiple teams owned by a uh, one same ownership group. And I think a lot of people in the United States are going to take advantage of that. So it's going to be interesting to, to like, see. It's almost like Liga MX is not following their own rules about uh, multi-team ownership. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they don't really care about that. <laughs> well, dude, thanks for coming out, man. It was, it was a blast. It, was just, it just blew right by real quick, man. It was always fun to talk to you on Twitter. So <laughs> I knew this was going to be a good talk. We didn't retire for MLB, so, you know, we'll – We'll touch base next time about that when my cups are probably it's last all good. Place. Series, series is still going. Yeah, series is still going. So it's all good. Oh god, right, man. Yeah, appreciate. I appreciate the invite and just uh, you know anytime, anytime. Yeah. So where are you running nowadays? What's going on? Where can we get more Eric Gomez, man? Yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff for ESPN. Obviously, you know we're gonna ramp up the soccer coverage this summer. So you know I'm popping up on everybody's app right now with uh, the Nations League, and that's gonna continue throughout the summer with uh, Gold Cup stories, uh, Tokyo 2020 stories, and uh, World Cup qualifying. So um, it's just going to be a busy busy next uh, few months with uh, the Mexican national team. Yeah, and if uh, you guys don't have ESPN+, Plus, get ESPN+, Plus because yeah. Oh, yeah. it is insane. You guys have every, every – every, I mean, you guys are losing Serie A, but, I mean, I only watch it for Chucky, so hopefully he we gets got, We got La Liga, though. We got La Liga, so that's the big yeah. one. You can, right, well, you can watch Lionel's next year.
No, it's all I good, man. Thanks a lot. I better be able to watch Linus. I hope he gets sold back to Club America or some dumb. He won't. He won't. <laughs> all right. All right, Thanks man. Thanks for listening, guys.